Easter Sunday. There's a message for every person on earth in Easter Sunday, not just Christian people. There's a message for every person on earth. There's wonderful news, of course, for disciples of Jesus Christ. And there's a powerful, challenging truth for those who don't acknowledge the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, God the Son, and it's an unloving act not to remind everyone of that. It's the most unloving thing you can do. First, I want to talk to Christians. I want to talk about three certainties of Easter for Christian people. Let's pray. It is the biggest thing we do when we open up our minds to your word. It is the one thing that comes directly from God, from outside, and shapes and forms our hearts. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's what the Holy Spirit uses to transform and renew our minds. We are so lost without your word. And it isn't just reading. It's understanding and it's treasuring. And so come, we can do the reading, as long as we know what the symbols on the page mean, we can do the reading, but we can't do the transforming. Your Holy Spirit has to come. Do that in these next few moments, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Certainty number one for Christians, because Jesus rose from the dead, I live life free from the condemnation of my sin. The presence and power of the risen Christ by the Holy Spirit in my life does, always does, two things at the same time. And this is how you can always recognize the work of the Holy Spirit. First, by the power of the Holy Spirit as he works in my life, I am rendered incapable of being indifferent to indwelling sin. Sin feels uglier because Jesus rose from the dead and sent his spirit into my heart. Sin is more discomforting to me as a Christian than it used to be. That's because my sin no longer just exists in my presence. It dwells far more conspicuously and painfully in me because it dwells in the presence of the Holy Spirit who lives in me, and he never gets used to my sin the way I get used to my sin. That's the first thing the Holy Spirit does. Makes it incapable for me to grow accustomed to the power of inward sin in my life. And yet secondly, and at, the, and at the same time, even though I'm not sinless, and I hate the sin that still dwells in me, I don't live in condemnation of sins repented of. So grace is greater than any one of my sins, and it's greater than all of them piled up together. So, so here's what that means. It means... Because Christ is risen and has sent his spirit into my heart, I strive, I strive for holiness while I refuse to walk in condemnation. And only the Holy Spirit does those two things at once. Only the Holy Spirit does those two things at once. 
So point number one, because Jesus rose from the dead, I live life free from the condemnation of my sin. Uh, of course, Paul, Paul was probably the author of the text we're going to read in a minute. He was probably the number one person who would have to think a great deal about the sting of sin in the past, the pain of condemnation. He came from a life with a horrible past. He earned his living trying to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul could very well have been responding to thoughts of his own guilt and regret and condemnation that would race through his relatively newly converted mind and haunt him at night when he tried to sleep. Probably that's what made him write these famous words. What then shall we say to these things? You can't pretend they're not there. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but, but gave him up for us all. That's on the cross. How will he not also graciously give us all things? With him, graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn there's the issue, isn't it? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Notice that first question. What, what then shall we say to these things? What, what things is he talking about? Well, you have to kind of study the text in two directions. You'd, you'd work backwards... you'd see things like this. For I do not consider the, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was Subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, he says we, notice he includes himself. Paul, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Groaning. Cancer. Tsunamis. Earthquakes. Floods. War starvation, violence, the list is endless. It's a tragic world. Where have you been? Those are, those are some of the things 
Paul says we have to address. We have to say something that makes sense, that gives hope. But there's more. You have to look forward in this passage as well if you want to see what some of the things are that Paul says. What are we going to say to these things? Look at 33 to 36. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. Now notice what he does here. More more than that, look what he's talking about. This is Easter, right? Who was raised. So so Paul's going to tie Christ being raised to freedom from condemnation. Not just his death. We all do that. His resurrection. He's going to tie it to my freedom from condemnation. Who was raised, who's at the right hand of God. Indeed, he's interceding for us. He's not against us. He's with us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Look at the list. Shall tribulation, distress. This is relevant, isn't it? Persecution on all sorts of different fronts. Famine, nakedness, danger, sword, As it is written, quoting the prophet, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In those things. We don't escape those things. In those things. More than than conquerors. Our text says you have to say something. What what shall we say to these things? You, you need something to put up against condemnation. First on his list in that text, condemnation. The, that vast, clawing evidence of the weight of my own guilt, the sting of my own conscience, the unbearable heaviness of regret. You, you can't just ignore those things, Paul says. You have to say something to them. You have to talk to those things. And it all ties in with that powerful message of Easter and the empty tomb. That's, why, that's what he means in that 34th verse. Specifically about condemnation. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who was at the right hand of God interceding. More than that. Paul says you, you, you have to, strikingly, you have to add this to Christ's death. If you want to be free from condemnation, you have to add to it. We all need to know more than the fact that Jesus died for our sins on the cross. That's crucially important. But Paul says there's something more than that. 34, those are his words. More than that. So the resurrection of Jesus does more than anything else to bring freedom from the guilt of past sin. There are always these three tenses. And there are related activities involved in redemption. Christ's past death, my present sin, and the ongoing eternal intercession for my case at the right hand of God Almighty. So so the resurrection of Jesus means that the benefits of redemption are carried forward as long as he lives. The power of the cross is pushed into the infinite future. It never wears out. It never runs dry. 
God's grace can no more wear out than Christ can die again. A dead Savior is no good to anyone, but a living Savior who still intercedes for me every day carries fresh grace into as many tomorrows as God gives me. Fresh grace into as many tomorrows as God gives me makes me incredibly happy. Incredibly happy. So don't think of grace as a one-time thing at the cross and it's like your investment. You know, you take money out of your tax-free saving account and you're gradually using it up. Think of it as the balance always stays the same. Doesn't matter what you take out. Stays the same. The risen Christ pushes grace into the future for as many days as the Lord gives me. Who is to condemn, 34? You know how it works. All sorts of people condemn. Your own thoughts condemn. You condemn. Your enemies will condemn you. Your critics surely will. Maybe your own family. Maybe you're, only, you're the only Christian in the house. Maybe it's your unsaved husband or your unsaved wife. Certainly the devil... All the hosts of hell, they make it their business. He's the accuser. Full time, that's what he does. Next time the devil tells you you're no good, you need to just say to him, when did you ever get so concerned about my holiness? There's no shortage of condemnation. All sorts of people will condemn. Paul's point isn't that condemnation doesn't come. It, it will come, it's going to continue to come. For the rest of your days, from yourself and from others. So it's, it's preparedness, not denial, that's the answer. Paul's talking about what you and I, 31, what you and I say to these things. And his point is, because we have a, a living advocate and not a pathetic dead one, none of those accusations, however they're offered, none can be sustained before God. All of those accusations, constantly, for as many days as the Lord gives me, all those accusations against me are overruled. Overruled. Dismissed. So now we have something eternally relevant to say to those things. Would you notice one other thing before we move on to the next point? It's, it's incredibly important. Do you notice how Paul ties his answer to condemnation for sin, not to improved behavior, but very exclusively to Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. There's no condemnation because I'm a much better person than I used to be. I hope you are growing in Christ. That's not your basis of answering condemnation, not your improved moral behavior. That's the enemy's trick, pull you into that one. Your freedom from condemnation doesn't rest in your improved moral behavior. It rests in the historic death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. Don't move it to something subjective. I started saying there were three certainties for the Christian. Here's the second, point number two. Because Jesus rose from the dead, I live life empowered by his daily presence. Wonderful words of Paul in Ephesians. 
I often wonder what he means by this. Having the eyes of your hearts. Isn't that a marvelous phrase? It, it's, it's, not, it's not just an intellectual thing. I mean, the intellect is involved. He's saying, I'm, I'm praying. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit's going to come and make you see things you're not seeing yet. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might. Keep going. What kind of power is he talking about? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from, it's Easter, right? When he raised him from the dead. Seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Paul says, oh, I'm praying. I know with your physical eyes, you can, you can see paper, you can see people, you can see pens, you can see your iPad and your iPhone, but there's, there's stuff that's out of, your, out of your range of vision right now. You can't see it. But I'm praying God will open the eyes of your heart. There's these eyes. They're not nearly as important. And there's the eyes of your heart. I'm praying that that you can't get up in the morning one day without thinking, oh, the glorious future Jesus has for me. I'm praying that God will open up your heart to those things. You'll start to taste those things. Can't wait for those things. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. This, this was like blood in Paul's veins. And he said he was praying God would open the eyes of their hearts to see the greatness of this truth. He says he actually prayed against laziness, distraction. He prayed against apathy in the church. He, he was just constantly concerned that people through mental or spiritual laziness would somehow not relish the explosive power of the new life Jesus brings to the converted heart. Paul hated religion without power as much as he hated religion without brains. He hated empty forms. He hated dead church. He said to these Ephesian Christians that the power of Jesus in the heart was real enough and strong enough to make any person brand new. He couldn't imagine anything remaining untransformed by resurrection power. He just was convinced that as surely as that huge stone and the legion of Roman soldiers couldn't stop Jesus from coming out of that grave, that there was nothing in the human soul that would ever be able to effectively resist what he called the greatness of his power toward us who believe. That I may know him, he said, in the power of his resurrection. It's no secret. Look around the room. It's pretty packed. There are all sorts of people that are here this Easter Sunday, and you'll come back next Easter Sunday. You, got, you have like a cultural religious thing going on. Christmas, Easter, let's drift off to church. Paul would say, 
I'm praying that you understand the kind of power we're dealing with here. He would say that before Christ rose from the grave, nobody had the right to expect this kind of power afoot in this world. People died and stayed dead. It was impossible for it to be otherwise. But now we've seen Christ risen. Now we've seen Christ risen. Do you see what that means? What was impossible before is possible now. These people weren't stupid. Dead people didn't come back to life any more then than now. And he rose from the dead. There. There, Paul would say. That's the whole point. What, what is it about your sin, your despair, your lostness, your bondage, your, your hopelessness that, that makes you feel as unlikely of future life as a dead person pushing out of a grave? That's the thing Jesus wants to do. Certainty number three. Because Jesus rose from the dead, I face every day and every trial filled with a glowing hope for eternity. It's related to the previous point, only it pushes more into the future than the present. Peter talks about this. 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He caused us to be, look at this, born again to a living hope. How did, how, how? Well, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Keep reading. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Can we just away, away forever with the silly notion that Christianity is more mature and more responsible if it never thinks about heaven and the renewed world to come. Peter says it's the mark of a mature Christian mind that it orients itself toward the coming of Jesus and eternal destiny. I mean, the Bible says many things in describing the present condition of those who don't live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They're said to be lost. They're said, I'm sorry, the Bible says they're fools. They're unsaved, they're condemned, they're children of wrath. All those are biblical expressions. But the saddest thing that it says about them is this. Say it. No hope. No hope. Let that sink in. Not just wicked. Wicked without hope. Not just lost, lost without hope. And that means without a conscious turning in repentance to Jesus Christ, God the Son, as Lord and Savior, 
There's, there's, act, there's just no chance in the slightest of ever knowing God, of ever having hope. Whatever distractions and successes and diversions they may fill their lives with for a little while in this world, eternally, in the long stretch, without hope. Strikingly, the first thing Peter notices about those who acknowledge Jesus Christ as their risen Lord, right from the moment of conversion, he doesn't even just talk about them being forgiven, he talks about them being born into a living hope. No Christians trouble-free. I sometimes, I respect it, I get it, but I sometimes, when we have the baptistry here, and, and Chris will be having those wonderful testimonies that people read, and every once in a while, there'll be a, a, a boy or a girl, and they're like 11 years old. And they'll read their fam- favorite verse, and they'll say, I just thank the Lord for the way he's, with me in the trials and struggles of life. And I'm going to go, okay. I know you think you've faced trials and struggles. <laughs> they come, don't they? They pile up. Oh, if only you could take the problems of life that you know you're going to face in the next 10 years. If you could just do this. I'm going to do this one. And the next trial will appear two weeks later. And then the next one, another. You could handle almost anything, but have you ever noticed it goes, everything's great for a little while, and then there's 15 problems? They come. They come in bunches. We don't get all the answers that we want to get in this life. Here's what I'm sure of, church. I don't know my future. I don't know yours. Here's what I bank on. In every trial, in every sickness, in the face of every loss, the Christian feels the pains of life like everyone else, but always mixed with hope. There's a hope in it. A confidence that in the end, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. And the Christian knows that because Jesus rose from the dead and he knows he will rise from the dead and he will live in the eternal delight of Christ's presence. That's what it means not merely to die but to conquer death. Here's another text. Almost done. For since we believe that Jesus died, have you noticed these words again? And rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In, in 1 Thessalonians uh, 1, he talks about coming with his holy angels. Did you know, this is, I'm sorry, this is off the point completely. Did you know, we all talk about Jesus coming back. Has anyone told you Jesus is not coming back alone? In other words, you're not just going to look up and see Jesus' feet coming down through the clouds. What the Bible says, it'll be with all of those, all of those who are presently in his presence, they're coming with him, and a myriad, that's the word used, a myriad of angels, there's going to be a massive second coming. A massive second coming. 
Even so, Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Paul says, I got this from Jesus. That's what he's saying. I didn't make this up. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The dead in Christ, their bodies will come out of the grave. That'll be the first thing that happens. They will witness the second coming My father, who's been dead since 2008, he won't miss anything that if I'm alive that I would see when Jesus comes. They won't precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel. With the sound of the trumpet of God, it's going to be loud. I'm sorry for people who once in a while they'll say, you know, that music is just too loud. You just wait till the second coming. <laughs> this living hope marks everything the Christian does. It, it possesses him. He stewards, he guides, he channels the rest of his life in light of being reunited with Jesus. He doesn't live for this world. He doesn't just use up his life. He prepares. He invests for the long stretch. He doesn't ignore this fallen world. He lives in the world, but not of the world, for the blessing of the world. To get them ready for the coming of Jesus. Those are three Easter certainties for the Christian. I have one more point. The resurrection of Jesus also has a message for those who don't acknowledge him as their risen Lord and Savior. I want to take you to a fascinating text. Matthew. It'll be on two slides. Scribes and the Pharisees, they're always giving Jesus a hard time. The scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now here's now Jesus is going to talk about the resurrection. This is Easter. For just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, look at this. Let me just go to the next slide. The men of Nineveh will will rise up at the judgment. Do you you think this is a parable, do you think? The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah... Jonah... And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It is an interesting text. You have to admit that. It's a resurrection passage, first of all. The sign he's talking about is his resurrection from the grave. And there's pretty good reason, I think, just textually, to take the words at least a little bit more seriously than we might be inclined to initially. There's no indication that these are just words of some 
hyperbolic element uh, or perhaps a literary device like a parable. If it is a parable, Jesus, as far as I know, rarely, if ever, names specific people and places in parables. He'll say, a woman lost a coin and was tearing apart the house. Shepherd leaves the 99, goes after one sheep. That's the nature, at least, of most of his parables. He seems to outline at least some kind of actual event that will take place when he comes again and judges mankind. He says, Jesus says, he says, the people of Nineveh are going to stand up. Just picture it. They're going to have stern words against many people sitting in this sanctuary who maybe knew all about the resurrection of Jesus. You've seen them. Watch the news. A group of people in somebody's office somewhere, and as soon as they get a chance, they grab a mic and their signs. You know how we do it. And he says the men of Nineveh are going to do that. They're going to push for a hearing. And they're going to say something like this to people who remained unresponsive to the evidence of Easter. They're going to say, you know, all your excuses for not living for Jesus don't impress us very much. We never heard a thing about Jesus. We never heard about his life. We knew nothing about his cross. We never heard of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We never heard of any of those things. We didn't have the writings of Peter or Paul or John explaining the life of Jesus. But when Jonah came and preached to us about our sin and about a holy God, we repented. What's with you? How can you possibly have any excuse you should have come running to Christ as your risen Lord? Jesus says, well, this will be the greatest sign of God's presence and power the world has ever seen. We celebrate it every week when roughly 2.7 billion people gather to worship on Sunday. This is the season called Easter. Holds the resurrection up before the whole world. The whole New Testament goes to uncomfortable lengths to make this same point of accountability. Accountability comes out of the grave along with the body of Jesus. Accountability comes out of the grave along with the body of Jesus. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people All people everywhere. This is not a parochial religion for North America. All people everywhere. All people in Israel. All people in Russia. All people in Iran. All people all over the globe. He commands all people everywhere to repent. What gives him the right to do that as long as they're sincere? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. How's he going to do it? By a man whom he has appointed. Look at now. And of this he has given assurance. This part up here is all true. How do you know? 
See it? By raising him from the dead. It's a different ball game now that Jesus is raised from the grave. It's a different ball game. God commands all people everywhere to repent and to come to Christ. They can't rely on their good works. They can't rely on the golden rule or knowing the Lord's prayer. They can't rely on saying, I, I slip around to church a lot more than I used to. God's going to judge the world by how they respond to Jesus Christ. He says so. You ready for that? Let's pray together.